Well, good morning, people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, the sheep purchased with the blood of the Good Shepherd. You know, it really is an honor to stand before God's people, those who were purchased with Christ's precious blood, and to declare God's word to you all. It's a blessing to be together. You know, every time we look into each other's faces, we are looking into the face of someone who will uh, shine like the stars of heaven. We're looking into the face of someone who will reflect eternally the glory of the infinite God. So what a blessing to be together. Something we undoubtedly take for granted, each of us this morning, not a single one of us feels the full weight of the glory of being together. Uh, Not a single one of us is truly cognizant of the full extent of what it means to be God's people, to worship Him collectively. But prayerfully, we ask the Lord that He would grow that in us as a result of our time here today, that this time together in corporate worship uh, would increase our zeal for the Lord. It would increase our apprehension of what a wondrous thing it is to be God's people and to be together. Let me ask you at this time to go ahead and go in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Today we are in verses 20 to 32. Exodus 8, 20 to 32. It's always a blessing to see kids taking notes, taking sermon notes. Uh, What a joy that is. I hope that, uh, well I know that the Lord will, if if you work on paying attention, as a child to sermons, that will grow into adulthood. You know, I, I often tell our kids, and I, I've said this to other kids too, that, you know, listening to sermons is not, uh, listening to sermons well is not something that will just happen over time. Uh, we, we have to train for that. It's sort of like an exercise. And, and when children learn to do that young, they become much better listeners of sermons as they become adults. So here we are, Exodus chapter 8, 20 to 32. We are in the section of the book known as the Ten Plagues, a pretty well-known part of the Bible. If you haven't had much exposure to the Bible, you haven't grown up in church or anything like that, probably one of the things that you might be able to say, I've heard of that, is the Ten Plagues. And so far, we have covered the first three. We've taken each one, um, one at a time on a Sunday And we have covered the first three. So, so far we've looked at the Nile to blood, frogs everywhere, and last week, annoying little bugs. Gnats, mosquitoes, or lice. We talked a little about that last week. We don't know uh, precisely what sort of creature, what sort of little bug this is. But uh, we know that it would have been awful because any of those is terrible. Uh, Lice, mosquitoes. You know, you could debate, would it be worse to be covered in lice or mosquitoes? I guess that would be... A worthy debate. But either way, we know that this would have been utterly annoying, utterly irritating, uh, and it would have shut down their ability to think, to function, uh, to go about their daily tasks. So that's what we've seen so far. The Lord is showing his power. It's one of the big ideas. You know, you're going to get a lot of repetition as you go through the plagues because there are some major themes that are present, and they're constantly appearing in each of the plagues. And one of those is simply the power of God as he is showing it to the Egyptians. He's putting on display his might, his glorious 
power. Just as we read back in chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You know, just a little verse like that tells us that the plagues are both judgment and evangelism. You know, isn't that interesting? You know, you, you don't really tend to put those two things together. They are judgment and they are evangelism. God is drawing sinners to himself by inflicting them with plagues. He is inflicting them with plagues in order that they might see that he alone is God and that they might therefore be drawn to him, to trust him, to abandon their impotent so-called gods and to turn to the omnipotent Lord of all. And I think a, a small implication that we can take out of this is that speaking of God's judgment has the effect of drawing sinners. When God's judgment is on display, his power in judgment, it draws sinners. As counterintuitive as that may be. And I think that that really flies in the face of the seeker-sensitive model for church growth. Uh, The seeker-sensitive model for how to do church is that you, you sort of strip away or you tuck away, you hide in your pocket references to sin and judgment and hell and wrath, and you just sort of hide those in the back or put those up on a shelf, forget they exist, because if you do that, you're simply going to put stumbling blocks in the way of people in coming to the love of the Savior. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. When the judgment of God is on display, people quake before God and they bow to God and they throw out their other gods. That's what's happening. Plague by plague by plague in Egypt so that some, as we've said before, at the end of the plagues will leave in the Exodus with God's people. Some non-Israelites, a mixed multitude, we don't know how many, but it could have been quite a few, quite a lot of people leaving with the Israelites because they have not only seen but endured the judgment of God and they have come to know him and want to worship him through his judgment. Last week we saw for the first time that the magicians of Egypt were unable to replicate the plagues as they had done before. Their sorcery or magical tricks, whatever combination of those is present. By the way, it doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be, well, these are are all happening by demonic power, or these are just sleight of hand magical tricks. It could be a combination of the two, as these, uh, these pagan magicians in the darkness of Egyptian religion have been studying these things for a long time. The way that witchcraft and Magical tricks come together. But either way, whatever combination of those there may be, their sorcery or magical tricks have reached their limit. They cannot make the dust turn to gnats. 
No matter how hard they try, they are like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. No matter how hard they try, nothing. They cannot make the dust turn to these annoying little bugs. And they are forced to admit defeat. And it really is remarkable that they would admit defeat. I mean, they have three times now they have matched Moses and Aaron. I mean, really, have they matched them? Not at all. But they have at least been able to replicate what Moses and Aaron have done. But now at this point, they admit their defeat. And they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We also saw last week that this new reference to the bugs coming on man and beast. Remember that language we talked about? How for the first time in the third, for the first time in the plagues, you get this reference to uh, these creatures coming on man and beast. And this is meant to point to more destructive plagues in the future. And this language is meant to point the reader forward to what is to come. Future plagues that will ultimately bring death to the Egyptians and to their animals. Since the Egyptians will not let the Israelites leave with their animals to sacrifice to the Lord, remember, that is what Pharaoh is standing in the way of. He's not only standing in the way of releasing the people, he's standing in the way of worship. And that means sacrifice, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Since the fall, the shedding of blood taking place, pointing to Christ and His blood, there must be the bloodshed, the death to cover the sins. And Pharaoh is not just standing in the way of the release of the people, he is standing in the way of this shedding of blood in divine worship. He's standing in the way of these pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God will strike both the people and the animals of Egypt with deadly plagues. That's what we got last week with this man and beast pointing forward to the destructive and deadly plagues that will fall on both man and beast. The title for our sermon today is The Fourth Plague, A Blanket of Flies. The Fourth Plague, A Blanket of Flies. We finished last week once again with a proud, stubborn, and unyielding Pharaoh. By the way, that's what we're going to continue to see all the way through these plagues. And even at the very end with the parting of the sea, a proud, stubborn, and unyielding Pharaoh. Chapter 8, verse 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That's where we finished up last week. God is sovereign over Pharaoh's unwilling heart. And yet Pharaoh is responsible for his own rejection of God's revelation and his refusal to obey the Lord of heaven. His refusal to obey God's word. And we've talked about that many times. And the story of Moses and Pharaoh cautions us against trying to find a precise understanding of how Divine sovereignty and human responsibility go together. It is beyond our ability to comprehend. It is beyond our limits. But we know both are true. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. God is sovereign even over the 
inside of people, and yet people are responsible for their sin that comes forth from their hearts. Both of these are true. And in the case of Pharaoh, Yahweh has spoken, and he continues to rebel. He continues to rebel against his maker. And let me just say this to us this morning, gathered here, maybe that is you today. Maybe that's you. You know, I haven't just described some distant figure, some particularly morally repulsive figure. I have described the unsaved sinner. Maybe that's you this morning. God has shown you his glory. He has made himself known to you. He has put himself on display before your eyes, but you still refuse to listen, to obey his voice. You refuse to come to him, to bow before him. The message that you need to hear from the 10 plagues is this. So of all the things that you're hearing, you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever, you haven't come to Christ, you're hardening your own heart, you're rebelling against the revelation that God has put before you. The, The obedience of faith has not been realized in your life. The message that you need to hear is this. Your refusal will only end in destruction and death. Maybe you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever, and you feel quite happy. Just know that will end. Just know that uh, this facade of happiness that you experience right now in this moment, sitting in this building, if you are outside of Christ, you're on the path to destruction and death. Your refusal leads only there. Nowhere else. So let this display of God's glory. Let this display of God's power and judgment, let it draw you to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the forgiveness of sins found through his blood. Let it draw you to the power of Jesus to save and the utter impotence of all the gods that you worship to do anything to save you from destruction and death. If you would, go and stand with me. As we read God's word together, Exodus 8, verses 20 to 32. The fourth plague. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water And say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people, 
Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Verse 25, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to Yahweh our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Tomorrow, only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to Yahweh. And Yahweh did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. You can go ahead and be seated. So more plagues to come after this one. As we end there, let's pray and ask for God's grace to... Show us fresh things today to help us see his glory. You know, for some of us, it might take 10 times, 10 sermons, 10 plagues to see God's power to the point to where we trust him, to the point to where we turn from sin and repent, believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this section of Exodus that we're going to look at today. We pray that your spirit would illuminate your word, his word, the word that he inspired. Father, we thank you that he has given us these words and through them that we are made complete, ready for every good work, that through them we are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Lord, you do all of this by means of your word. You make wise the simple. You fill the heart with joy that is cast down. You instruct us in paths of righteousness. You make a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. God, we praise you that you have given us this, this treasure, this gift. And Lord, we ask this morning that we would take hold of it and that through it we would see the gift, the Word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would take hold of Christ, that we would love Christ and trust Christ and obey Christ. Father, we thank you for one another and the support that we have in this warfare against the evil one, the support that we have walking through this world that is under the dominion of the evil one. 
We thank you that we have each other to link arms with and to, to grow together with. Lord, we thank you that we're not alone in this battle. We're not alone in this pilgrimage. Father, we pray that we would take advantage of the great gift that we have in each other. We ask that this time together today would be edifying through the teaching of your word and through the fellowship of the saints. We pray that the conversations that happen today would be grace to to each of us, Lord, healing balm to each of us, encouragements and challenges and words of admonishment, words of comfort. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We ask that this sermon would glorify you, that your people, all of us, would hear your word with our ears, with our minds, and with our hearts, and with our lives, that we would walk differently because we've been here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage for today here at the fourth plague gives us two things to focus on. And here they are. The protected people, verses 20 to 24, and the lying leader, verses 25 to 32. So two parts, the protected people and the lying leader. And as we like to do, I want to put the spotlight on each passage as we come to that, uh, because ultimately that's what we're doing here is explaining God's Word. I'm not interested in getting up here and telling you jokes or stories or giving you uh, my little very limited wisdom. Uh, I, I want to explain God's Word to you. I want to do my best to explain God's Word to you. So let's read it, and then let's talk about it. So the protected people, verses 20 to 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Let me just interject a comment here. Back at the end of Genesis, we learn that when the children of Israel, when Jacob and his sons came into Egypt, Joseph had been told by Pharaoh to set aside this very good land, the land of Goshen, for them. So for hundreds of years, they've been living in this land called Goshen. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. So here we are. Another meeting. Another encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. Another meeting in the morning, we're told, down by the water. Which, which tells us that we are now entering the second cycle of plagues. We, we have a second set that we're coming into now. Remember the pattern. There are three sets of three. If you want to understand how the plagues are laid out, they're not just random. They're not just kind of thrown in there. But there are three sets of three plus the final plague. 
So the first plague in each set of three is down by the water. It's in the morning. goes out in the morning to Pharaoh by the Nile. And in the second one, it is in Pharaoh's palace. And then the third one is without warning. And so this pattern continues. The first three, and the second three, and then the third three. So here, with the fourth plague, we are back where we started. We are down by the water in the morning. Let me read you a quote from one commentator, Douglas Stewart, for what kind of impact this likely would have had on Pharaoh. It cannot have been lost on Pharaoh when he saw Moses waiting for him on the bank of the Nile. Just imagine he comes out and there's Moses. There's Moses. That he was once again in the place and situation where the plagues had started. The cycle of encounter locations and patterns is presumably intended to have this effect on Pharaoh. To cause him, as the pattern begins to repeat itself, to think, in effect, oh no, not again. And that's exactly what's happening. Oh no, not again is probably racing through Pharaoh's mind as we've circled back now down to the water. In the morning. And of course, we know that the plagues intensify. And that probably is not lost on Pharaoh either. This understanding that now that we're entering into another set, the extent to which he has that in his mind, we don't know. But we're back where we started. It's happening again. I think also would have had the effect of letting him know that things are just going to get worse. Yes, it is happening Again, God is about to send the fourth plague. So he instructs Moses to give a command and a warning. That's what we have here. God comes to Moses and he says to Moses, and by the way, we're meant to see that repeated throughout. God says to Moses to do something and Moses does it. God says to Pharaoh through Moses to do something and Pharaoh doesn't do it. It is the difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, if you will, collectively understood. Of course, we know Christ is the seed of the woman, but understood collectively as the offspring of the woman, those who will come in through the Christ. We have this this contrast between those who obey God's word and those who refuse to obey God's word constantly throughout the plagues. God tells Moses to give this command and a warning. Send my people away to serve me, or I will send the swarms. And you don't immediately pick up on this, but in the Hebrew, there's a play on words here. The Lord is saying, you send my people away, or I'm going to send on you swarms. As with the previous plague... It is not entirely clear what sort of creature God will send. The frogs were clear. It was frogs. But here, again, it is not entirely clear. But it appears to be some sort of fly. So the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Septuagint, was made in Egypt. It was created in Alexandria a few centuries before Christ. 
And so these are people who understand Egypt. So particularly with a, pas- with a passage like this, if we get a translation in the Septuagint for the Hebrew, it gives us some understanding. It gives us quite a bit of insight, I think, as to what is going on here. And the Septuagint translates this from the Hebrew as dog fly. Dog fly. And we recognize here with these swarms that it could have been a mixture of various kinds of flies. What's being emphasized here is the swarms. Here the Lord says he will send swarms of these on the people. Verse 21. On you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. And also the ground on which they stand. Now once again, as we've said this before, this is incomprehensible to us. No one can really understand what this is like unless you were there in Egypt. This is unprecedented swarming. You can go on and and look at, at how insects swarm. You can see this. This happens on the earth. But this is an unprecedented swarming. It is absolutely incomprehensible to us. And later in verse 24, when the Lord sends the plague, this swarm of flies is described as heavy. Now, this is interesting because throughout, one of the words that is used for hardening, actually three verbs that are used for Pharaoh's hardened heart, but one of those verbs is he heavied his heart. His heart became heavy. And what's interesting here is that is the word in verse 24 used for this swarm of flies. So the the heaviness of Pharaoh's rebellion, the heaviness of Pharaoh's heart is matched by the heaviness of this dense cloud of flies blanketing Egypt. There will be no escape. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You know, you must remember too that unlike us today, you couldn't just pull up your, your window and, and have the screen keep the flies out. That's, that's quite wonderful. We love that, especially here in Georgia with the mosquitoes. We love that, that we have screens. And so we can keep those out. We can keep the bugs out. Well, it wasn't the case in Egypt. The windows were just open to provide as much airflow as possible. And in this case, as much swarm flow as possible. The flies were coming into the houses. There was nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. But although Egypt will be blanketed with flies, this time God will shield a particular part of Egypt. He will not allow the swarms to come to Goshen. It is as though he puts a an invisible shield around Goshen. The flies know they can't go. They can't go there. They cannot enter Goshen. God will shield his people. This is the eastern part of the Nile Delta. And this will not be a place for the swarms. This is where God's people, the Israelites, live. This is where the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live. This is where the relatives and fellow Hebrews of Moses and Aaron live. This is where the people who gave rise to the Christ through the tribe of Judah live. Verse 22. 
But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. So what we're told is that this attack will be limited exclusively to the Egyptians. It will be a precision strike against Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. As for those whom God calls my people, they will be safe in the land of Goshen. Notice uh, the contrast here between my people and your people. Your people, Pharaoh, will endure this judgment. My people will be protected. My people will be kept safe. Now, of course, this has already come up in our gospel community group. I'm sure it's come up in yours and maybe throughout as you've discussed this. Uh, This raises a key question. Did God allow his people to endure the first three plagues? And maybe you haven't even thought of this question before, but maybe this is one that's been rattling around in your mind. Did God allow his people to endure the first three plagues? Well, it is true that all along, We have encountered the language of Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. So all along, the the plagues are coming upon Pharaoh, his servants, your servants, your people, into your houses. So we've seen this language repeated. And we recall that it was the Egyptians who were left digging for water along the Nile. So clearly the Egyptians have been the target all along. I think we have to understand that, that the language has led us to think all along so far that this is entirely targeted towards the Egyptians. However, given the language here in the fourth plague, given the emphasis placed on this distinction that God will now make between his people And Pharaoh's people, it appears that the answer is yes. To some degree, God's people have had to endure the first three plagues. And we must recognize when we read stories like this that we're not given all the information. It's not exhaustive. We're not given every little detail. So we really don't know what God has been doing in Goshen. Also, what about Moses and Aaron? And do Moses and Aaron leave? Are are there lice on Moses and Aaron? These are just questions that we have, and they're interesting questions. They're questions that we want to ask, but they're not questions that we are given full answers to. It does appear that, yes, to some degree, God's people have had to endure the first three plagues. Otherwise, why would this language be used in this very specific way? As God here will do something, as it appears, new. He will do something in this plague that he hasn't been doing before. You know, God does not promise to shield us from life's sufferings. We know this. We know this as we sit here this morning. God does not promise to shield us from the various judgments and effects of sin that come on the world. Sickness, famine, war, accidents of various kinds, violent crimes, evil dictators, tornadoes, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis. 
God doesn't promise to shield us from those things. And we know that here this morning because we have experienced all sorts of things in our lives. And we have loved ones who have experienced all sorts of things that are themselves effects of the fall. God's judgments are often unknown to us. What God is doing. We know that the wrath of God abides on the world. God's judgments are present here on earth. God doesn't promise that he will shield us from these things in life, but he does promise two things. Two things. He promises that we are regarded as my people. Notice that here with the Israelites, regardless of what they have had to endure up to this point, they are my people. So as they are enduring these things, they endure them as my people. As God's hopeful people, with all of God's promises tucked away, treasured in their hearts. And secondly, we recognize that we will receive ultimate rescue. Ultimately, God's wrath has been removed from us. Ultimately, God has taken away his judgment for our sin, which we deserve. He's put that on Christ. And he has removed it from our account forever. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10. We are those who wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come. The wrath that is coming on the world. We have been delivered from that. And we see that with the ten plagues. That although perhaps... The the first three plagues the Israelites had to endure, and maybe even in full force, what we see ultimately is that when the blood covers the door, God passes over his people and he spares them from the death of the firstborn. Picturing, of course, ultimately the sparing of us from God's wrath to come. We will be delivered, as it says in Revelation 21.8, from the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We have been delivered, people of God, from the second death. Whatever we may face in this life is regarded by the likes of Paul as this light and momentary affliction. The weight of glory presses in on us, and we know that we have been saved from the second death. And we will reign with Christ forever, come what may in this life. The Lord finishes his warning with the why and the when. So first the why. Why the plague with distinction? Why is God doing it in this way? This is another reason, I think, that the first three plagues that the Israelites to some degree had to undergo the first three plagues, is here we find in verse 22 that there's very specific language used that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. For God to come into the land and to set part of it apart, for God to come into the land and as it were, draw boxes, places where the plagues will fall and a place where the plague will not fall, shows that he is active and supreme in the land. You can translate this earth or you can translate this land. 
you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. One commentator said it this way, that Yahweh has invaded Egypt. He owns Egypt. The Pharaoh who thinks he stands supreme over Egypt with his godness as he sees it and all the gods behind him are nothing. Yahweh has invaded the land. He made the land and now he has come in and drawn distinction within it. So that's why. And then verse 23, we see the wind. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. Now, this is really interesting. We get these two things put together in this plague. God controls space and God controls time. Now, let me say that to us again. God controls space and time. In your life, in my life, he's in control of it all. So in this plague, we see his sovereignty over both. I guarantee you this. Every worry that you came into this building with this morning fits in one of those two camps. It either involves space or time. Probably both. Here we see that God is in control of both. So what do we do? Well, we trust him. We trust him as our heavenly father who knows what we need before we ask it. Who knows all the spaces in your life knows every moment of your life. And in all of that, he is providentially guiding you home in his way, according to his wisdom, for your good in accordance with his design. He controls your space and your time because he controls all space and all time. He is the Lord in the midst of of the earth. In verse 24, we get the description of God actually bringing the plague on the Egyptians. And notice that at the end, we get this language of destruction. It says, throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Now, this is the first time in the Exodus text itself that we've gotten the language of ruin or destruction. It tells us that we've entered a new phase. You go through the plagues and you see this. It tells us that with the the first plague of the second set, we're entering into a ruin cycle. We're entering into a destruction cycle. We're headed down the path of destruction. It also tells us, and this is important for our minds, if the last point just kind of is messing with your head about the Israelites having to endure the plagues. It also tells us that what the Israelites presumably had to endure up to this point was of a more irritating or annoying nature. Isn't it interesting that once God uses the word ruin or destruction, he begins to shield his people. Up to this point, it has been irritating. It's only now that the plagues are starting to really hurt so to speak. And it's, it's interesting that when this plague is referred to in Psalm 78, verse 45, it says, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them. Now, we're not told anything about plants being devoured as they will be with the locusts. I think we're being told that whatever biting was going on before with the gnats or the mosquitoes or the lice has now reached a new level. 
it has now reached a new level with these blood-sucking dog or horse flies that are biting swarms of biting dog flies, horse flies, devouring, as Psalm 78 says, the people. So that's the first thing we get out of this text is the protected people. We see what God is doing in drawing a division between the Egyptians and his people in Goshen. Secondly, we see the lying leader as we finish up this morning. Look at verses 25 to 32. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to Yahweh our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Here we are told that after this plague ensues, after the force of it has been felt, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron, as we saw with the frogs in the second plague, he calls them forward to speak with him. And what happens here is a dialogue that is meant to highlight Pharaoh's character. So I want to quickly go through this dialogue for you to see Pharaoh's character. First, Pharaoh says, go, sacrifice to your God in the land. Now, we need to recognize that this really is a remarkable concession. He is going to let this massive group of foreign slaves in the millions organize themselves within the land to worship a foreign god other than Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. And keep in mind that intentionally, the language that is constantly used for worshiping and serving God is the same verb that has been used for serving as slaves to Pharaoh. So, in essence, what Moses is saying, as the the Lord leads him, what Moses is saying is the people are going to move from being your servants, Pharaoh, to being the servants of Yahweh. And it is remarkable here that Pharaoh is willing to make this concession. And yet at the same time, it is a foolish attempt to negotiate with God. That's what he's doing. Trying to negotiate with the Lord. God's demands, people of God, listen to this, God's demands are non-negotiable. When God says flee from sexual immorality, that's exactly what he means. God's demands on his people, his requirements for his people, what he commands his people are non-negotiable. You can't go to God even in the recesses of your heart. 
and begin to sort of work out what God will allow you to do, what is okay, or your own timeline for giving up your sin. You'll give up maybe 5% today, and then maybe next month you'll kind of make this next step. No, 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 no. God's demands are non-negotiable. He speaks, we turn, we obey. Here we see Pharaoh trying to negotiate with the living God. Folly. Folly for him and folly for us. Second, Moses says, no, we can't do that. Sorry. Not acceptable. Our worship, Moses says, would be an abomination to the Egyptians. They would even try to stone us because of our sacrifices. Now, it's unclear here why the Egyptians would stone, would try to stone Moses. And Pharaoh doesn't argue with him. So it's a, in essence, Pharaoh recognizes that if the Israelites begin to sort of collectively as a whole come together and practice the kind of sacrificial system or, or the kind of sacrifice that the Lord commands them to do, that the Egyptians will be so outraged by what they perceive to be this, these abominable acts that they will stone the Israelites. It would have been a lot of stones. But Moses recognizes that that would have been the case. Perhaps it has something to do with sheep. A number of gods in Egypt are associated with sheep. And we know that lambs and sheep and goats are part of the sacrificial system of the Israelites. We read in Genesis 46, 34, as Joseph is speaking to his brothers, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So it seems as though there's some kind of relationship between the, sacri- the sacrifices of the Israelites and their being shepherds, and some way in which that would have caused outrage among the Egyptians. But even more importantly than the threat from the Egyptians, Moses says, we must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God. And here it is, as he tells us. You know, this tells us, people of God, that we have to worship God his way. Now, worship is not something we just sort of come up with. We don't just come together. The elders don't don't just sit around and go, what would be cool? What would be fun? What would be exciting to do in church service? What would really get people uh, kind of worked up? We We don't have the right to do that. Christ governs the church, not elders. Christ is king over his church. We don't sit around and just figure out how we're going to do these things. We must go to God. God tells us how he is to be worshipped in his word. And here we see that emphasis going all the way back to Moses. Uh, Pharaoh, uh, sorry, you don't get to tell us how we worship God. We don't get to come up with how we worship God. God will tell us how he wants to be worshipped. And guess what, people? God has told us how he wants to be worshipped in his word. Our job as leaders, is to discover what that is. Third, Pharaoh responds by saying, okay, okay, but don't go too far. I don't, I don't understand what he means by that. It's kind of strange. It's like three days journey, but walk slow. 
Uh, it, it really is not clear what he's saying here, but he just does not want them to go too far. Of course, we know God is bringing his people out of Egypt. Pharaoh wants to make sure that they stay within Egypt. And so he says, don't go too far. And by the way, I need you to pray for me. Plead for me that the flies may be removed. So forth, Moses responds, verse 29. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with Yahweh that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Tomorrow, only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. Here it's like Moses scolds him as a child. Now, Pharaoh, don't cheat again. You better not cheat again. That is what Moses tells this lying Pharaoh. Pharaoh had lied previously during the second plague. He told Moses that he would let the people go to sacrifice if he would pray for him. But when God removed the frogs, when Moses prayed and God removed the frogs, Pharaoh's refusal continued. So Moses calls him out on that, and he says that he must not lie again. By the way, This whole scene of Moses interacting with Pharaoh, the boldness of Moses, you know, and I'm convinced that 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 was part of what God was doing in having Moses be raised in the the royal court. Uh, Moses had a confidence, even though we see a lack of confidence early on, Moses understands how the inner circle of the court works. You know, you take the royal family, and they appear somewhere, the royal family in England, and they appear somewhere, Uh, the the people are going to really just freak out. And everybody's going to be massing up. You know, we saw this actually at one, at one point when we lived in Scotland. Uh, the, the queen came to uh, the castle there in Edinburgh, and she was spending some time there at the palace. And there were people just all over the place trying to get packed in there so that they could perhaps see her get into the car or get out of the car or something like that. But to the people who are part of the royal entourage, people within that world, within that sphere, even regarded as family, it's just, it's just, you know, grandma or it's just auntie or whoever. It's just really not a big deal. And I'm convinced that for Moses here, this this boldness that he has with Pharaoh ultimately comes from his mission by the Lord, but that God had used his early raising in Egypt to help him in interacting in this way with the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. So what happens Moses prayed, God removed the flies down to the very last one. Verse 31, not one remained. Not a single fly remained. By the way, that shows God's power. We're not dealing with some natural phenomenon. The scholars, untold number of scholars trying to come up with precisely the domino effect of how this was all nature. Not one single fly remained. From a heavy, dense swarm of flies covering everybody, the ground, into the houses, not one fly left. All gone precisely when Moses prayed. The Lord answered Moses' prayer. So how did Pharaoh respond? Well, wait for it. Verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. In other words, Pharaoh showed himself to be a liar. He now has a track record of cheating or lying. Maybe the first time, forgivable. 
Now the second time, he's got a bit of a track record. Pharaoh is showing himself to be a bona fide liar. This is the man whom the Egyptians call a god. He cannot keep his word. And this, of course, is placed in sharp contrast to the God who has kept and is keeping his word perfectly. In other words, it isn't just the case that through Pharaoh's lying, God's plan is being carried out. Listen to this. It is also the case that through Pharaoh's lying, God's truth is being glorified. This is a man who cannot be trusted. This is a man who has no business leading anyone, contrasted with the Lord who rules the earth and who faithfully leads his people. Pharaoh is no God at all. He has no control at all. God is exalting himself over all the so-called gods of Egypt. And God is doing this. He is fortifying his people's trust and he is reaching out to the sons of Ham. You know, I was just reading recently the covenant that God made with Noah and his three sons. And, you know, time is nothing to God. God is eternal. And it hasn't been but a a blip, but a second, since God is there speaking to Noah and his three sons. And we see the progression all the way up to this particular Pharaoh through Egypt. And we recognize that God is reaching out to the Gentiles, just as he will do in the coming of the gospel, just as we see throughout the Old Testament with the likes of Rahab and Ruth and Tamar and others. God is faithful. He can be trusted by his people, and he reaches out to the lost. He calls them to come to him. He calls them to trust in his power. So will you come? If you're unsaved, if you're not a believer, will you come to this God and trust in him through Jesus Christ? And if you're one of his people, will you trust that God is the one who controls space and time, that he will not let you fall, that he will preserve you and keep you powerfully with his mighty hand until the end? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning from Exodus chapter 8. We thank you for showing us your glory, your power. We thank you for showing us your faithfulness. Lord, and the way that you ultimately protect your people. Though we face many things, we know that we are ultimately a protected people. We have been saved. We cannot fall away. We will be preserved until the end. And ultimately, we will be protected from your wrath. And we will not endure the second death. We thank you, God, that you have given us these promises, that you've called us your people. And so we confidently trust in you this morning. Lord, be with us as we go through the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate what Christ did for us, as we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we commune with one another. Would you be with us now, we ask, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.